As a people, we are constantly evolving, and part of what influences how we evolve are the conversations we have with ourselves and other people. Welcome to Evolution Space Chats, where we take a moment to tell our stories, to see ourselves in each other, and to grow in dealing with our daily challenges. This is Divinity and you are on Evolution Space Chats brought to you by Sowetan. Today I've got Dr. Samgen Ngobo with me who is a medical doctor, author and founders of Sisters for Mental Health who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at the age of 14. She identifies with her illness primarily as it arrived prior to her qualification as a doctor. Hi Dr. Samgen. Hi, Divinity. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm well. Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting <laughs> me here. <laughs> we had such an interesting conversation before we went live. Hey? Yes, yes. And it's interesting that in describing yourself or in writing a piece of yourself or about yourself, you say that you you identify more or primarily with uh, your illness, which is the bipolar disorder, more than you being a doctor. Absolutely, because I've lived with bipolar disorder twice the time I've lived being a doctor. So I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder 20 years ago. I've been a doctor for just over 10 years. So what's more familiar to me is my lived experience with the mental illness, then the qualification came after that. But also... I wonder if I was, I, I did not have bipolar, mm. would I be a doctor? Did I, would I choose the medical route? That's what I'm wondering, actually, as you're speaking, that could is could it have, could it be that it's the dis, the illness that made you decide that you'll study medicine? Absolutely, and in, in that is the reason. That's why I say that I wonder what mm. path I would have taken had it not been for the fact that I had my illness early on. Um, because I was so young, I just thought doctors or mind readers they can detect things before anyone detects them and I wanted to be that magician (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to be that magician too hence I wanted to be a doctor to help people understand human behavior Mm. so definitely uh, my illness did influence and I often say I often ask my doctor they say did I choose my illness or did my illness choose me did I choose Mm. my profession or did my profession choose Mm. me and the reality is that it just what if it all just came together in the way that it did? Yes, yeah, so true. So speaking about you being diagnosed with bipolar disorder so young, you were 14 yeah. years of age. Mm. How was that? Did you understand it at the time that you, or how, and also how did it come about that you got the diagnosis? Maybe you can just talk us through that. Yeah, sure. So basically being 14 years old, I had no clue what mental illness even meant. I was so young. This is 20 years ago, KwaZulu Natal, Eteguini, and that was in grade nine Mm. when this happened. And it wasn't this wellness conversation that we're hearing now. Yes. It was nothing close to that at the time. So I think I was just displaying behavior that was escalating in terms of abnormality. Okay. So it's not that my parents just picked up 
oh, she's being moody. And if you think about it, I'm 14. It's expected that teenagers can be a bit emotional at times. So when did it start becoming like a pathology or an illness? Yes. When did they start seeing? So things had to really escalate and become increasingly abnormal for them to actually act. Otherwise, it could have just said, she's just irritable. She's just moody. Our 14-year-olds or teenagers are tend to be that mm. way. So I started seeing things that aren't there, hearing things that say things like, I'm speaking to deceased relatives. Mm. I was saying things that are increasingly concerning to them. Obviously, I didn't see anything wrong with what I was doing because the insight was in there um the and it was my first time being diagnosed so i could not have possibly seen that there's something wrong with my behavior Mm. so i think things just escalated in severity and abnormality to a point where my parents then took me to a hospital i'm so so grateful that they were so proactive in in the type of help they pursued because i think you and i would not be sitting across each other as a doctor normal speaking about mental health the way that i i am but i'm just grateful that they were proactive and open-minded about the resources available you know pursuing a psychologist psychiatrist and i come from a religious background where my parents believe strongly in god so i'm raised in that foundation but it also came with its own thing as you know yes (laughs) i can absolutely imagine that and so so they they saw the signs that they did and they decided to seek medical help yes and then they told you you know, at that time, the very first time when this whole episode happened, it was it became an unspoken. So imagine a confused 14-year-old. It became an unspoken. You know, when you've been hit by a hurricane and you can't even make sense of it yourself, you know? Mm. So it's like, what was that? Let's not talk about whatever that was. Yes. And um, even when I write and I speak in my book that it's like a sleeping giant. So it happened. It became an unspoken. No one sat me down to say, this is how you are behaving. This is what happened. But I just remember a whole lot of commotion at that time in my life where I was being exorcised, hindsight that is. Yes. Where the people in church came to see me at the hospital. The first time I was admitted, hey, yeah, you better laugh. <laughs> you know, um, they say hindsight vision is 50-50 and that's exactly <laughs> it. So I remember the people from a church, they come to see me at the hospital. Now, this is little old me, 14 years old. Don't even know what's going on, why I'm even in hospital. Yes, I was about to say that you're being taken to hospital, but no one's actually no. communicating what's going on. No, that was not communicated to me at all. And, you know, it's not unlike you've been in an accident and your body's sore. Yes. You, I'm 14 years old. I'm in the ward. So people come to pray. So it's the big people. They're coming to see me. And, and then they say to to me oh no pray pray then they say um say jesus and i'm like jesus okay cool hi well volume is increasing say jesus and i'm and i'm just complying and and they're saying say jesus i'm like say jesus say jesus so it's becoming like you know it's becoming intense and then i'm also complying and then i realize now because you know you can just see that the hands were becoming firmer on me they were exercising a demon Mina, I'm just complying. Uguti, I'm being made to shout the name of mm. Jesus, but they think they're casting something out, out of me. Out of you. And I think one thing that stands out for me was the facial expressions afterwards. Because now I was just complying with what the big people were telling me. Mm. I'm just little old me, 14 years old. And I was just screaming because they were making me scream. But I yes. think they thought something is coming was actually out. happening. But I think what was most traumatic, and I look back on that, which distorted my relationship with God to some extent, is... I didn't see compassion in those uh, the eyes of the older people. When I say big people, I mean the adults. Yes. I didn't see a look of 
concern and love. I'm sure they were obviously concerned. They brought prayers. But what I recall was as if I had brought something on myself. And that's why I mm. speak about it when I say the uncommitted sin. It's stigma. Is an uh, It's like an uncommitted sin, but you feel like you've done something wrong. Mm. So that's what happened at the time. And then culturally, people believed I'm bewitched, even though my parents weren't that deep in terms of uh, the cultural yes. aspect of it. But, you know, when you're desperate, you try every sense, mm. every avenue. And I admire that about them, that they just wanted their child well, whatever that meant. Mm. Um, so then the stigma element was so high at the time. Yes. Because the mental illness conversation wasn't what you and I are having right yes. now. It's not like you can tune into a podcast, go to the radio, go to Instagram. <laughs> what Google. Was, absolutely. There was no such, you know. So, um, you know, I became ill and it became an unspoken. Then there was the traditional stigma, cultural stigma that I had to contend with. And I felt like I was the weakest link. Mm. And I and I was angry because I didn't understand why did the demons come in me and not the other people. Mm. And we you know that whole thing of you don't pray enough. You are you don't pray. You don't concentrate when you pray. You know how traditional our families are about yes. the prayer. You know that kind of a thing. And it it was it was very alienating because I was so confused. No one sat me down and said you actually have an, a mental illness. All I was told was when I asked what's wrong, and they'd say you have a mood disorder. What does that even mean to a fourteen year old? So I thought, okay, I'm a moody person. What what does that even mean? Mm. You know, and how do I get better? How do, do I get do better? Do I laugh all the time? Am I always Absolutely. happy around everyone? Do I not allow any nothing to bother me? Mm. Mm. And what does disorder even mean to a fourteen year old? So mm. then when people. Now the f- prayers are being carried from the hospital. Now they're coming to my home. And you know how it goes when you're having prayer at home. You, they'll prepare like snacks for you to have. Yeah. Biscuits, cake or coffee, Tea. you know. Consistently people are saying, no, thank you. And it then dawned on me when I look back that they felt that whatever I was having, it's in the water. <laughs> it's in the water. It's somewhere there. And they wanted nothing. I mean, if somebody's prepared, it's just courtesy to at least have a cup of coffee. Yes. But everyone's like, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. We good. Absolutely. We don't want what's yes. in her to come into us. Absolutely. So can you imagine how that felt coming from a very strongly rooted family of believers and then the same believers are now alienating you. Mm. They want nothing to do with you. And it, if it was the routine that we go to someone's house, we bring prayer and they serve, why weren't they eating then what we were presenting to them? And then I realized that what I had presented was so terrifying. But it's only now I can explain it back and say they didn't understand. I I felt so horrible at the time because I felt like I did something wrong. Mm. So I didn't look at people with the eyes of compassion. I was very hurt. I was confused. Of course. I don't I wanted nothing to do with this God that can allow a demon into a little girl. Mm. And it says if I don't pray enough, you know, it was just all those things that were just so too complex for a mind of a fourteen year old. To understand. And I think also the way that for a long time uh Christianity and spirituality has been taught is that you are good and nothing bad happens to you. And if something bad happens yes. to you, it's because it's coming back to you and it's like karma yes, and all of yes, that. Yes, and so yes, you're yes. wondering, probably as a 14-year-old, what have I done so bad yes. to actually deserve this happening to me? Absolutely. That's exactly what it was about. Um, you know, we're always told that be a good person and nothing bad will happen. happen and oh, yes. all of us know that. <laughs> It doesn't apply. No. You know, it just seems to just hit you hard. So you can imagine at that time, what could have been so bad that I would bring such evil where I even mm. become demon possessed. And mind you, this is the time of days of our lives when Marlena was possessed. <laughs> mind you. So you know the character because yes. I think we're roughly in the same age space. So I'm thinking, did I have that in me? 
you know? So it was that kind of a thing. And when then did you start actually, did at any point or at what point did anyone actually have a conversation with you? Or when did you start understanding what was going on and having like a language that you understood being communicated with to you? It actually came in much later, to be honest, because I, I had that index presentation which an index is just the first time you present with the illness mm. and then my life was fairly calm up until i got to university but okay. i was in denial complete denial because i'd see very ill patients during my psychiatry rotation and i couldn't identify that i'm one of them because for me it was a they versus me thing okay little did i realize that when i'm ill i'm exactly behave, behaving exactly in that way it's just hard to fathom for mm. me you know um so the acknowledging was there, but the insight wasn't there. So I could acknowledge that, okay, I have this thing called bipolar, but I, I didn't know internalized. Who told you that you have bipolar? You know, interestingly, how did you find out? Interestingly, I was told by my psychiatrist and he then passed on a week later, which is so ironic. It was so traumatic, by the way. Um, so I, I kept wanting to know what is wrong with me? What is this thing that is going on with me that puts me in hospital so many times because, mm. my goodness, my university years were volatile mm. because the pressures of life were now increasing. I have this condition that is just like a seesaw of emotions on its own. Add other stresses and pressures, it just becomes chaos. So I think I'm grateful to him um, that he didn't tell me in detail at the time because mm. I think... I may not have reached the potentials that I'm reaching or going to reach because I would have maybe defined myself yes. according to the illness. Maybe that's why people did not want to tell me. Mm. Because I asked him, I said, what is wrong with me? And then he says, you have bipolar. And then the following week he passed on. And it was just so strange in that way. Maybe I would not have known still my diagnosis, maybe for years to come. But um, I had not accepted it. Uh, so I intellectualized it that I have bipolar, but I thought I'm that bipolar that doesn't need to do with medication. <laughs> you know, there's other famous people who are in that position too, where you feel like it limits your creativity. You feel like it limits your, your brain functionality. Mm. So I acknowledge that I have bipolar. I tell my friends or close family that I have bipolar, but the acceptance of do I need to live with medication for the rest of my life aspect, I did not accept at all. Okay. So that was a challenge for me to actually finally make peace with my condition. Mm. It's actually in recent years. Really? Recent years uh, where, I mean, really internalizing, living with it, being one with the illness. This is in recent years. Then speaking vocally and publicly was only last year. Mm. Did, is there something that happened that made you shift? Yes, absolutely. Um, so accepting and deciding to walk this journey with my illness and befriending my illness. That's mm -hmm. what I always say. Um, what happened is that I was just tired of being admitted to hospital. I can literally count beyond my two hands how many times I've been to hospital. In, in my university years, there's a time I was admitted twice in the year. And it, as a, a, a mental health admission, a psychiatric admission is not two days go back to in your room. In and out. I, my, my doctor puts it best. She says, when you're well, I'm well. Things are lit. <laughs> when I'm ill, mm. I am ill. And it, and it's very true. I become that severely ill. It's hard mm. to even recognize that I'm this put together individual. Mm. I just grew tired of running around in circles. I'm fine. Um, then I don't take my medication. Then I relapse again. A stressor comes. And I think the care in which my doctor brought, the doctor that I started with at the time, 
that she she helped me understand my illness. She explained it to me. And it's so important because being told a diagnosis is being told a diagnosis. But to internalize it, you need people who are patient and compassionate with you. Because mm-hmm. at the time I was like, why aren't you taking your medication? I'm not going to comply taking medication that I don't understand what it's for. Mm-hmm. I need to understand what do I do that deviates from the norm that requires me to take medication. Mm-hmm. And no one has sat me down up until 2017. Sure. So I'm diagnosed that way back. But to be sat down and, you know, help them understand, help the patients to help me understand and not chastise me. It only came then. Mm. I think they didn't know how to articulate and it was confusing for everybody else. And then you asked me what what was the shift? There definitely was a shift that makes you and I end up on this platform and you guys being able to go make <laughs> that made me Googleable. <laughs> you know, um, I had a very public relapse. Mm. And that was life changing for me. Uh, when I say public, it was proper public, <laughs> in the What's true sense. Public? Yeah, in the <laughs> true sense of an epic relapse. So it wasn't. The severity was definitely there. Okay. I think I've had way more dramatic relapses in terms of the severity, psychosis, me being out of touch with reality. But what made last year's one so life changing and has put me into the space that I'm in in recent months, years, is. The reaction to it, it was in front of my colleagues. It was in front of people who don't know me. It circulated in my work department because I left. <laughs> you know, voice notes or something else. So in my psychotic state, I was manic and psychotic. Mm-hmm. And on a WhatsApp group, Sisters for Mental Health was still just a WhatsApp group. Okay. And on that group, I was already unwell. And then did I not also deactivate people being able to even delete me or remove me? So I was the admin. So no one could stop me talking because I was the admin of that yes. So in that WhatsApp group, I was just speaking every chaotic thing you can think of. I was out of touch with reality completely, completely. Mm. So I'm screaming, I'm threatening, I'm speaking things that don't make sense. And then unfortunately and sadly, those who are in the group and those who are outside got to receive it because mm. it circulated. Yes. So I expected better from people that I worked with and were in the space of mental health. I expected better from the people who are in the group being a group of mental health. Mm. So if one of your own is struggling, do you now circulate that for others to, for with what purpose? Because because it's not as if people reached out in support mm. or to help. Mm. So I think it stung, it stung badly. And also I had such a major fallout. I had to be booked off work for six months. So I was not on the front line from when COVID started. So yes. March till end of September, I was booked off. I've never heard of a leave like that. I've never had a leave that long. Yes, I'd get sick for two and a half weeks, but not where I'm booked off six months. Six I thought months. My, I, I, I couldn't make sense out of it. Like, what do I do with myself? All I know is a day to day of waking up, being a doctor, going to mm. work. So if you take away that, it's like you've taken away a huge part of my identity. Sure. And I think I got that time to reflect. Hence, all the projects I've started because they kept me busy. They gave me they they re-inspired and reignited my sense of purpose mm. uh, in life. So definitely it was a watershed moment last year. The most painful relapse I've had, I'd say, the most humiliating one. But, um, you know, all things work together for good. With what you're saying, I am thinking of mental health and the workplace and mm. toxicity and how... How does one navigate that? 
how have you navigated that? How, how have you come back from that breakdown and that meltdown? And yes, you took six months off and there were other things that you were doing, but going back to work, how was that experience? And I can imagine that when they booked you off for six months, they said you need a time off and time to heal and they just wanted to take away whatever could um, go wrong mm. in terms of you actually being at work mm. and they could have felt that work would be too much for you to handle in that time. And But now I'm thinking of the struggle that the people that are supposed to be there, including colleagues, mm. to support people going through a mental health challenge. Because you can take away the work, and like you're saying, you feel like a huge part of yourself has been taken away. Um, wh- how how best do you think you could have been helped yeah. during that time? Maybe six months, oh, mm. an entire six months, maybe it was a bit drastic. When you look at it now, how best do you think you could have been helped? And also, how was that transition of you coming back into the workspace? It was a process. It was an extensive process. Besides the interventions around me, psychologists, psychiatrists, occupational therapists, because in hindsight, I needed the six months to heal. My brain was not functioning at its high capa- at its full capacity. Yes, I could go to the shops mm. and you know do those things and interact. Mm. So even friends would say, "Oh yeah, maybe you can just study for some exams." I'm like, "Do they realize that like I was not there anymore at that time?" So you I didn't need to- the six months. Yes, you felt it was too much at the time, but now you realize that yes, you yes, yes. Needed. Even while it would, I mean, two months. Three months in it, I realized that I'm not as fast as I was at the mm. time. But so many things had gone wrong in that sense, uh, in terms of how people reacted to me. Um, but I'm grateful that I have a team that manages me with foresight. My psychiatrist is incredible. She, you know, when somebody's like my mental health advocate when I'm even failing myself, she's yes. that person. Um, she respects me in terms of I'm not just somebody she just tells what to do. Mm take this treatment, that's what you must do. She helps me understand and wants to know my concerns. And then my psychologist, I check in with her all the time. So it's not like I just disappeared and chilled thick at home mm. for six months. It was a, There were things I was doing. I was rehabilitating with the occupational therapist. Since I bounced back, I'm functioning, you know, back you better are. than ever, actually. <laughs> but um, what disappointed me was the lack of support where I thought I'd get it from. Um, I think people did not know how to react to me post Mm. that incident Um, the illness became my identity I think people stopped seeing some gay the doctor some gay the friend some gay the professional Mm. and I became the bipolar and it was so painful so there was a lot of time of healing that needed to take place uh, a lot of time of reflection a lot of time of all those things hence you know I decided to write my book during that time to just have a, a cathartic experience to let go of the pain and make it be useful so that somebody doesn't go through what they went through like you're speaking like we were speaking off the record or off the <laughs> mic about the next person gaining and doesn't feel alone mm. so it was that kind of a thing for me where I thought I want to heal from this and hopefully it may save someone's life as well. And then you asked me, how is it getting back to work? I decided not to return to the same environment, um, not because I was chased away or anything of that sort. I just became so drawn to my passions now that I had started mm. and I wanted a different starting environment. I did not want to be so triggered as well. Mm. So um, 
Sisters for Mental Health was born during the, those six months. Vocal Mentality was born. Reflections of a Convoluted Mind, my book. And then after that, I during that time, I was given the option to... N- no one chased me away. Mm. But f- for me, I just felt that I just want a change of environment, change of interactions. And that's exactly uh, what I went for. And I couldn't be more grateful that I did that for myself. Mm. What would you say to someone that because I often feel like in some instances I want to return to certain spaces because I feel like I need to go justify myself or I need Mm -hmm. to go show them the better me or I need to and what would you say having gone through that experience what would you say to someone that feels that way where they Mm -hmm. could have had a similar experience to you or any experience that relates to their mental health or their wellness actually and in the workspace and they feel like Yes, I can walk away or walk out, but I want to sort of like come redeem myself again. Mm. No, no, that's a very, very uh, powerful question and, impo- and an important question. Um, I think what I needed to do, what I felt very important for me to do at the time, you know, when everything was so fresh and still raw and so painful, I did not want to do the things I'm doing now or you see me doing to come from a place of Mm. bitterness and anger and resentment. I wanted to make sure that the energy that I bring out or even if I narrate my story and my my perspective, my Mm. version of it, you know, um, I didn't want it to come from a place of anger or blasting people out. I wanted to come from a gentle place where I have healed as well. So that it, it becomes a fruitful conversation, a fruitful perspective, as opposed to um, it being a, a space where, oh, no, she just has a platforms and now she's ranting away where mm. she can, you know. Um, I felt God speak to me to say, Sam, I'm redirecting your path in this way. So it wasn't a situation where it was like, I'm done with you. I want nothing to do with you. <laughs> no one chased yeah. me away. And there was no... I. I I had to overcome self-stigma and shame. So to the person that feels that they need to prove or vindicate themselves, vindicate yourself through your own narrative by taking charge of your own narrative. Mm. That's what I would say. You have nothing to prove to anybody. You need to validate yourself for yourself, uh, vindicate yourself for yourself and to yourself. Mm-hmm. And I, I won't even, I always make it clear that the journey has not been glamorous at all. It was void of glamour mm. you know oftentimes people see this doctor some guest speaking here and there and they think oh my word she's conquered bipolar and it has been a rough journey it continues to be difficult but i'm just saying to get to this point where people see me it has had very very dark and deep valleys mm. there's moments where especially after that relapse i'd wake up at 3 a.m weeping and i think lord please tell me that didn't happen I wake up, oops, I'm still in reality. It did happen, you know. It was very difficult. But I just want to tell people that overcoming shame and stigma starts with you. There's religious stigma, as I spoke about, you know, growing up. There's the cultural stigma. Mm. There's social stigma, the stereotyping, the jokes. But when I overcame my own stigma towards myself, Mm -hmm. the rest stopped to matter as much. I hear you. Because I had gone on the journey of healing. So if somebody now makes jokes about a bipolar, as people say, well, you're a bipolar or mm. people with bipolar are like this, or it doesn't offend me because I know 
that I've taken charge of my own narrative. Yes. So there's nothing to prove in spaces where you feel you've been humiliated. If you want to go back, it's great, but not to prove a point to people, but because you want to be in that environment. Mm. And at times as well, people tend to remain in toxic spaces more than they need to. But maybe though that toxicity is a hint to redirect. Mm. Because um, my doctor always says to me, Samge, you need to protect your mental health with all that you've got. You need to protect it. You need to prioritize it. So things that compromise it, be aware of them. Mm. And for me, I just have gone on a path where I focus on things that preserve my mental well-being. I avoid triggers. I avoid things that make me vulnerable to relapsing and falling ill again. Mm. And I think what you're saying just goes back to that whatever wellness journey you need to go on it starts with you yes it doesn't start with other people it starts with you and if you are able to have those conversations with yourself yes. and you are able to accept certain things about what you need to face up to and then it becomes so much easier because it's internalized more than it's actually about external absolutely fact, fact, absolutely so this your book yes and what's the title again Reflections of a Convoluted Mind, a Journey with My Mental Illness. And then there's Vocal Mentality yes. and there's Sisters for, for Mental, mental Health. health. Yes. All of this you've done, and you've done in part because you want to normalize the wellness conversation. Absolutely. Let's speak about what that even means because there are so many wellness initiatives, wellness conversations happening around. And I we were saying earlier that sometimes it, it does not even involve the people that are on yes. the journey. Yes. Let's speak about what normalizing the wellness conversation looks like for you. You know, uh, people have now have started quoting me on this because I say it so often, <laughs> so I'm quotable. <laughs> you know, um, come a long way. Hey? You know what I'm telling you, but you know, for foundationally, with all these things I've done, the book, the NPO, the company related to mental health, the primary thing that strings it all together is found is the foundation of my belief that the best storyteller about mental health issues is the one living with them. So I wanted to humanize mental illness. I want to give hope because still in 2021, people still look at the man on the street running around naked, speaking to the sky, and mm. that's, they still see a mentally ill person as that. Mm. So I found myself in a powerful position, I think, and I felt it to be my responsibility to humanize that, to say, here's a medical doctor living with a very challenging mental health issue. And, you know, oftentimes we feel better when we are mirrored. So yes. if you see somebody that looks like you in whatever form of what looking representation. like you, representation is critical. Mm. And you know the cultural aspect. People always think mental the mental health conversation doesn't happen between African people. Mm. You know, it's to say that no, the mental illness mental illness affects every race. It affects every age group. So I just found that there's so many aspects of me that break stereotype. Mm. It can be a medical doctor. It can be a 14-year-old. It can be a black woman. And you don't have to be defined by it. Yes. So I live with bipolar disorder. I don't suffer from bipolar disorder. Mm. And I am not a bipolar. It is a part of my life's journey, as God had allowed, but I am not my illness. Mm -hmm. There are so many f aspects to who I am. Yes. Um, this is just a part of it that I can't ignore. It's a part of my journey. So 
yeah, the best storyteller about mental health issues is the one living with them. And that's the foundation of all the things that I'm doing. Mm. What you're saying wants, wants me to take this conversation slightly to us speaking about terminology and naming things because you said you live with bipolar and you don't suffer mm-hmm. from it. And has that been an important thing for you? And do you think it's an important um, aspect in the way that we look at, at at mental illnesses and the wellness journey? It's critical, it's vital, and I wholeheartedly agree with that because I don't want to be defined by the illness. Mm. Um, the terminology is very important because that's how one ends up living with the label. Mm. Um, and you carry this label on your shoulders and you don't see anything beyond it. And especially if now you're told you have bipolar and then the people with bipolar that you see are so far removed from your reality, then you will reject this diagnosis. Mm. You will reject it because you have such terrible portrayals of what you have. So to say I don't suffer, it doesn't mean that the illness is not difficult to live with. Mm. It's it's a daily challenge. But in saying that still, I live with the illness. I coexist. I even name my manic episode as Madam J. I call her Madam <laughs> J. Just to personify people. May, I just always make sure as a disclaimer that I'm not making fun of the illness. Mm-hmm. I just want to rationalize that state that I'll be in. It's still some year, but not a well some gay. Yes. So to make sense of it, I just call her Madam J because mm-hmm. I it's like I get into the space of being feisty, saying things I shouldn't say, being a bit too upfront and brash. It's still a part of who I am because of illness, but it's not who I am because I'm a gentle person, I'm a caring, I'm an empathetic person. But when I'm unwell, that goes away. I'm incredibly mm. irritable. So labels go a very long way. And what we name things to be is very important. So to say I live with bipolar disorder is because it's reflecting the fact that I've made peace with the illness. I live with, with it. That. I coexist with it. And I'm not a victim because I feel like when you say you are suffering from something, it's like you're claiming victimhood. Mm. And uh, I'm just here to try and break those things and demystify them so that the person who's listening to this conversation and has a loved one who's struggling with it mm. or they are they have a different perception of what a mental illness is mm. and what a mentally ill person can be and do are there any fears that you have that you feel like you need to confront almost on a regular basis when it comes to you living with with bipolar you know you know when you feel like the worst has happened mm. and but life is life the worst can still happen can still more happen. than worse you know <laughs> yeah but for me my worst nightmare was having a public relapse and as life would have it the worst happens. happened and it catapulted me though i thank the experience now even when i'm in my car sometimes i just switch off the radio i'm like wow I came out of that, you know, because it was just that it was just that it was just that hectic. Mm. Um, so, the, you know, when you feel like the worst has happened, then you say, OK, now what? Mm. So sometimes things need to break into pieces and so the pieces you've dreaded most in yes, order for you yes. to emerge more fearless, more brave. Yeah, I definitely would not be sitting across you had what happened um, did not take place. But I, I, much as I disclose my diagnosis to loved ones. I definitely didn't think it'll be like on a website and be readable. <laughs> yeah. But so that's the glory and freedom and in 
being con- and confronting your fears. So my worst fear did take place and I may still have anxieties or maybe, you know, being ill again. It's not a, a, a definite that I'll never become sick again in terms of relapsing. Mm. But my worst fear was having a public relapse, which did take which place. Happened. Yes, it yeah. did. My worst fear came true and <laughs> it was like, OK, now what? <laughs> you and know, you, th- you probably in fearing that thought you'd never come back from it. Or you're Absolutely. Like, it's going to be the end of me and it, it will like full stop. No, no absolutely. More. That's exactly it's exactly what it was. I felt like it's the end of me. Uh, way too from here. I committed career suicide, mm. um, reputational suicide. I thought, oh my goodness, I don't see what else do. I? And there was two options: do I go into oblivion and just you know be coy and shy and disappear into you know like obscurity, or do I just take charge of my own narrative uh, and be unashamed? Because I just had I just had a conversation with myself. I just said. I, some gay, no, okay, I think it was God speaking it to me that mm. I can't escape myself. While I'm on planet Earth, I'll come as some gay. Mm. I can't, in, I may change the versions of some gay, yes. but I can't say new body, new, <laughs> new being, new, ex- no, I'll come as some gay. Yes. So I have to just make peace with the mistakes I've made, the choices I've made, the embarrassments, the humiliations, because I'm not, while I'm on earth, I'll only be some gay and I have to take charge of my narrative. Mm. Mm. I totally hear you. And it's so beautiful to see how you've actually just done that and how something that could have been like distraught or was distraught actually, but then you were just able to turn that around Mm. and now it is serving so many people Mm. in such a magnificent way. There are things that we go through when we are young and for you it was being diagnosed with bipolar and you've had many traumatic experiences growing up are there any childhood traumas that you are still healing from not at this point anymore because mm-hmm. um the you know the trauma related to stigma i think the one of the biggest things i've learned to overcome in this entire process um, from the time I was diagnosed to where I am today, um, was not only blaming the people around me for my feelings of anxiety or resentment and rejecting uh, the illness, you know, cultural stigma, religious stigma, social stigma. It was literally making peace with myself as well um, and overcoming self-stigma. Mm. So I think I was... Trying to actually befriend yourself is not an easy thing. It mm. sounds, people make it very kumbaya. It's not very <laughs> kumbaya to to make peace with yourself. Mm. So I think it it was. I think one of those things that was a reality is that this is what I presented with at a young age, and I just had to make peace with it and forgive my reality. I guess that I have bipolar disorder. I can't change that. Mm. It is what it is, and. Um, I think I I struggled for so long to accept and make peace. Like you're surprised that it's only in recent years. Yes, I'm so surprised. Yes. I'm like, what? No, it's not like I've been this advocate for uh-uh. because of the fact that I, I carried shame. I carried a lot of shame related to it because I thought, does it mean that I'm, and I'd overperform, try and overachieve more than mm. necessary to cover up that I had this difficulty. Mm. So because I, I now do things at my own pace, a pace that might not be the next person's pace, it's my pace. 
And I guess I would call that a trauma I'd had to, I've had to overcome of trying to overachieve to a point where I no longer am happy. Mm. You know, and in doing that, now things just flow organically by mm. God's grace. Mm. That's amazing. Let's wrap up this conversation. Time is like speeding. Yeah, I know <laughs> it is, hey? Uh, let's talk about holding up space, the concept of a holding up space. What does that mean to you and for you? Holding up space for me means being that holding that baton for the next person to carry. Mm. Um, holding up space is we are at different levels of healing. We're at different levels of insight. We're at different levels of accepting whatever struggles we have. So particularly because we're talking about mental health and mental wellness, I might feel that I've still got several, a, a, a long distance to still walk. And, you know, while you're on earth, there's always more to overcome, more to, you know, make peace with and learn. But where I am is an inspiration to somebody who may still maybe feel that they're further away. Mm -hmm. So holding up space for me is being that sense, that beacon of hope for somebody that may feel that they won't make it beyond the point that they're in. And I'm just so humbled and so grateful by the impact my journey has had on other people. Much as I'm still learning and growing and finding new experiences mm -hmm. and encountering new challenges as well, because it doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. But for the fact that my very existence and the things I've done so far are an inspiration and a liberation and emancipation for the next person. I'm grateful and I feel that like that is a way of also holding space for the next person mm. and for myself, showing up for myself. Mm. I think that's the last part is so important. The past couple of days I've just been sitting on we always are holding up space for other people. Yes. And we forget to hold up space for ourselves. Absolutely. And that saying that we can't give from an empty cup, I think it it's exactly the same thing, that if you're not holding up space for yourself, what capacity would Do you have, have Ooh, to hold up space for I'm the next person? You. I'm telling you. And I think one of the things I've learned through this very brief journey that I've encountered in the past year is you one will get pulled in all directions by people suggesting you should do this you should do that no why why, why sisters why not but what, what about the men <laughs> so many things I'm being told to do and initially I was so overwhelmed by the expectations now mm. with good intentions that I had now I'm feeling as if I'm being pointed in all these directions and I've had to make a conscious decision what I say yes to what I say no to what, is this taking away from me? Is this adding to me? Have time for some get to replenish some get look after my own mental health, mm. showing up for myself and just knowing that I'm not going to be able to save the whole world, but I can just do the best you that can't. I can being truthful to my own narrative because it would also be very, it would be self-betrayal to be seen as this mental health ambassador or advocate, whatever titles people give me. And then in my secret space, I'm no longer, I'm not, I'm not recognizing myself. Mm. So much as I speak a lot about mental health, that is not all of me. It's mm. a part of my life's journey. And I was becoming very anxious when people were starting to only see the mental health. You know, I remember somebody asked me without digressing too much when they said, hey, how are you calling me? And they say, so how's sisters for mental health? How's vocal mentality? <laughs> and I said, I'm fine. Thank you. You know, so it's, it's a very important thing to shop for yourself. 
mm. first and see myself as without all these other accolades and other things that I do to just be present with myself. So it's very important. Yes, I totally agree with you. The Something that stands out for me is just the importance of owning your own story and rewriting your own narrative. Yes. You can't undo the things that you can't undo. There are things that are absolutely out of your control. But there are things that are in your control. And instead of stressing and obsessing over the things that we've got no control over, our better, our energy is better used when we actually do something about the things that we can do something yes. about. And I think that's what's beautiful about your journey and oh. the work that you do. Thank and you so much. And carry on doing it. More strength and more grace to you in doing that. Oh, thank you so much. What a pleasure. I don't believe in coincidences, but I do believe in the concept of serendipity. Mm. And this, my dear, is definitely it. And with your name as well. I mean, <laughs> it just is all divinely <laughs> coordinated. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is available on Sowetan Live. Thank you so much. Till next week. Be part of our community and follow us on our social media platforms. Till we meet again next week. Love and light. Evolution is the key to breaking the cycle of the norm. Thank you.